Barbara Mailer was 12 years old, we learn, when she moved on from space adventure stories to reading Jane Austen, Tolstoy, and Chekhov. If Anna Karenina was on her list, we can only imagine what she made of Anna's sojourn in Italy described by Tolstoy in lines like this. Vronsky and Anna had been traveling for three months together in Europe. They had visited Venice, Rome, and Naples, and had just arrived at a small Italian town where they met to stay some time. Anna, in that first period of her emancipation and rapid return to health, felt herself unpardonably happy and full of the joy of life. The thought of her husband's unhappiness did not poison her happiness. On one side, that memory was too awful to be thought of. On the other side, her husband's unhappiness had given her too much happiness to be regretted. The memory of all that had happened after her illness, her reconciliation with her husband, its breakdown, the news of Vronsky's wound, his visit, the preparations for divorce, the departure from her husband's house, the parting from her son. All that seemed to her like a delirious dream from which she had waked up alone with Vronsky abroad. The thought of the harm caused to her husband aroused in her a feeling like repulsion and akin to what a drowning man might feel who has shaken off another man clinging to him. That man did drown. It was an evil action, of course, but it was the sole means of escape and better not to brood over these fearful facts. That from part five of Anna Karenina. It's safe to say that Barbara never expected to find herself many years later in eerily similar circumstances in Italy with her lover while her husband and son were back behind in the States. She writes, Harry kept asking me to stay longer in Italy and I kept missing my son Peter. The most vivid memory I still have of that month is the cold day on which, casually looking for something to read, I found a copy of Anna Karenina in the bookcase. I had read it before, at least twice. This time, I just cracked it open in the middle and found Anna in Italy with Vronsky, her lover, having left her son in Russia with his father. It was excruciating to read, but I couldn't stop. Never before or since have I so identified with a fictional character. It was so painful that I couldn't commit myself to the book by taking it to a cozy chair, yet I couldn't put it back on the shelf. I just stood there for an hour, turning the pages, cold and anguished. Through it all, however, there was one big difference. I knew I would never give up Peter. Anna Karenina, a fully formed, flawed, fictional character, capable of the most passionate depths, depths of soul. Anna, who embodies an emotional truth so real that Barbara comes face to face with herself in an excruciatingly painful encounter, and she has the courage to experience its full charge. 
we meet Barbara Mailer Wasserman in her new book titled Love of My Life, where we find she's not just a woman of deep passion with a sense of adventure, but also of a tremendous good humor. She celebrates the belly laughs she had with her husband, Al, and with a nod to Milan Kundera's novel, The Lasting Sense of a Very Bearable Lightness of Being, The Lightness of Living of Life. She tells us right from the start that various incidents in her present life triggered memories from her past that she set down episodically rather than trying to create a comprehensive, integrated narrative, like a novel, perhaps. It's as if she loves her life enough, so much, in fact, that she has no desire to constrain it formally, to force grand lessons from her wide-ranging experiences, but rather to value the truth of the special moments making up her life, even as they pass, savored, remembered, but not bound. As for transcendence, even when we learn that early in life Barbara's captivated by cosmic visions in the Mars adventure books of Edgar Rice Burroughs, she closes this book in conversation with her big brother, Norman. Norman Mailer, the award-winning writer who gave her the Burroughs books to begin with. And in that exchange, they consider the big picture with cosmic considerations of our place in the universe. And still, there's no grand theory of everything, but rather grandness, the grandness of the loves of her life. We had a chance to speak by phone with Barbara Mailer Wasserman about the life story she tells in her book and about the importance of reading and writing in her family. The impact of Anna Karenina, for instance. That was really quite a moment in my life, being in Italy and reading about Anna Karenina having run off with her lover to Italy. You know, I mean, reading when I was a child, I don't remember doing much besides reading. I mean, I'm sure I did, but that was really the most, the thing I wanted to do more than anything else. And, you know, I'm I'm reading a lot now, actually, but once again, it's really been kind of wonderful. Are you drawn to novels or everything? Uh, Well, novels and biography, primarily. You told us in the book that your brother Norman recommended some books to you and you began to read the Mars series by Burroughs and you stimulated your interest in space flight and so forth. You were growing and opening your worlds up through reading. Well, I was always fascinated by the idea of the universe. From a very early age, I remember, as a matter of fact, my mother had gotten us the Book of Knowledge, you know, the 20-volume thing. I remember there were pictures of of what we then thought of as the universe, and I was fascinated by them. And did you think that we'd make it to space? No. I mean, I I had a fantasy about it. Uh, I remember uh, wanting to go to Mars because of the Edgar Rice Burroughs stories, and Norman was at that point going to be an aeronautical engineer. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, he'll, he'll develop the rocket. Get me there. Because <laughs> you knew by then he was a genius. The Stanford Binet test proved it, right? <laughs> you also talked about your interest in archaeology. So where did that come from? Same kind of thing? Reading? I, I just remember it developed a lot while I was in college. You certainly were the family's archaeologist when it came to that very important central section 
you took on the exploration of the family genealogy. You're going after your mother's birth date. When was she born? And you're going to excavate all of these daunting archives and so forth. And what you learn is so much about your family and about fact and fiction in life. You know, I love research. So I started, mostly I, what I did was I went through, for months and months, I went through at the New York Public Library, which was the only way one could do it at the time. I went through the ship arrival records to try to find out when they had come. And indeed, I finally found that when my grandmother came with all the children, including my mother, so I knew that she had been born before she got here. And this is where you began to ask whether you could trust what we might take to be the facts, the census figures, the ship manifests, and the like, because mistakes are made. People, for some reason, don't want to reveal the whole story. Absolutely. Right? right. No, I mean, the only thing I know for sure is that my grandmother and all of her children arrived on a particular date in October 1894. Everything else that I found out may or may not have been true. I mean, one of the things one realizes is that while you're searching for documents, the documents may not be accurate. And you also were able to connect with a lot of family members, weren't you? Cousins whom you didn't know before. When I started looking into some of my father's history, I started finding cousins who I hadn't really had much contact with because they all lived in South Africa, which is where my father had grown up. And that was because they left where they were? Well, you know, it's interesting. Both of my grandparents on both sides, my grandparents probably came from not too distant places in in Lithuania. But one side came here and the other side went to South Africa. The uh, South African relatives, I I didn't get to know until quite a bit later, actually. I mean, my mother's family, of course, we grew up with practically. I mean, they lived in, in New Jersey. We used to spend all our summers with them. So I knew them very well, but I didn't know my uh, my father's family very well until much, much later. One sister's children, as a matter of fact, I uh, became more cognizant of, and particularly her grandchildren. I became extremely friendly with, and I do mention them, I think, in the book. My cousin Stephen, who came here when he was like 21 and stayed with us for a while, and uh, we, we got to be friends. And he now lives in Australia, but we're still friends and see each other occasionally. You tell us about mom's passing. What were some of the things that you loved most about your mother? You don't have to be precise, but just some of the things that were so dear to your heart about her. Well, I guess, I mean, how much she loved us. And I think the feeling that uh, she gave us that we were more important than anything else in the world to her. And I think, you know, I I guess I just absorbed that. To me, one's children are more important than oneself. Even though you don't dwell a lot on Peter in this book, in the introduction you tell us you won't be talking about him and his family and other very close family members and friends. Every time he's mentioned, he is so special to you. When you were in Italy, how you longed to, how you missed him and things like that. So I would very much suspect you wanted to give him what you had from your mom. Oh, absolutely. Is he an editor because you were an editor? Did he learn that from you? No, I don't. It's 
it's interesting that we are a family with so much that, that everyone has some kind of ability to write or edit. I'm not sure whether it's in the genes or whether it was just from all the reading we did. Right off the bat, the title of your book is intriguing, Love of My Life. Anybody who didn't know what he or she would find in the pages would think, oh, well, that would be a romantic interest. But the title has so many layers because you talk to us from different points of view about the different ways we as humans love and in your life how that was expressed. We get a sense, if we go with you through the whole book, that you don't necessarily understand it, but you you're kind of love your life. You came to love your, you've come to love your life. And there are the times when you talk about the aura, people saying, well, Barbara, you've come into a room and your your aura just makes us happy. And does that come from being loved by mom in part? You joked about, maybe not joked, about having an easy birth. And maybe that was part of it. You talk in the introduction about a sense of life that's not cynical and bitter. Well, I do think it had to do with the fact that uh, I felt loved. You know, I, I think there's probably uh, nothing stronger than that in, in forming one's attitude toward life. By the way, I'm so glad that you get the double thing in, in the title, which is my love of my life as well as loves in my life. And you do it so subtly and beautifully. Each of your encounters, whether it be with a particular lover in your life or your interactions with your family, or yourself, but we get a sense each time that you've grown through an experience. And I love it that you start with that Spain story and how innocent you and your friend were. You're going to go over the Pyrenees and rescue some political prisoners, but it's also that wonderful sense of adventure, your fantasy of going to Mars. I bet you still have it. Do you? Do I? Uh, I hope so. We get that sense, too, when you have, for example, a breakup of a relationship, and it's devastating, devastating. You're also able, because you have self-awareness, to say, yes, but yes, but I get my life back in a way where I can keep going and keep developing. And we see that persistence and that beautiful love and trust, even though it's, it's so bleak you can't believe it. But you have that wonderful sense of being able and willing to grow as a person. Well, look, I've had a very fortunate life. You know, people who have had bad lives say, why me? I say, why have I had such a fortunate life? I do do not know. I mean, (laughs) I, I just feel incredibly lucky. It was wonderful the way you built the book in terms of how you start and grab us right away with the early days and Spain and how you weave in the people who were important in your life and then that important critical section in the middle about your mother and your father and your family and the excavating you did there and then brought it back out and more recent times and then ending with the chapter about Norman because you were able to talk with him about the great questions in life and maybe you did that always but at the end you bring us the discussion about what's there after we die and how do we fit in the universe not heavy-handed but it's a wonderful way for you to bring us some sense about a brother and sister and how important you were to each other did you know right at the start that that might be the way you wanted to close not at all no, I mean, the, the thing which, which is, uh, uh, by the way, I'm just thrilled at how you have responded to my book. I mean, it's just wonderful. Uh, but for a long time, I didn't think I was going to write about Norman at all. 
other than, you know, the references to him throughout the other stories. But I didn't think I would write anything specifically about him. And I think, as a matter of fact, I mentioned at the beginning of that story that what happened was I had a phone call from a friend who was talking about how she had first met him when she was just a child. And it just triggered my need to, to write about him because I realized what had what had really been a very definitive relationship, which was his uh, appreciation of my athletic ability. <laughs> he had... Uh, appreciated my being able to... Uh, with the pee in the spoon? Yeah, the, the pee on the spoon and, and walk that without dropping it, <laughs> which which turned him around from hating my guts to appreciating me. <laughs> and that was pretty early on because you were three, weren't you? Yeah, and he was seven. But she had uh, learned when she first met him, she was only five years old at the time, and she didn't know what a genius was, but she was told that she was going to meet a genius who was seven years old. <laughs> and it was the combination of those two things that made me realize, oh, I've got to write about him. <laughs> Most people think of Norman Mailer in a different way, but to think of the brother-sister relationship that you had and that you expressed in this way that you could hold your own, and that's part of loving your life. You could hold your own with your brother who could be overwhelming, I'm sure. Well, you know, I, I feel sort of almost guilty toward his children because I feel in some ways I have the best of Norman. I mean, he was really wonderful to me when we were young. And I think much of, of whatever self-confidence I developed had to do with the fact that he was always telling me I was terrific. And sharing things with you, things that you might be interested in, like the books. Well, and for also t- educating me in many ways. I mean, he, he really taught me an awful lot while I was growing up. May I ask you about your own novel? You refer a couple of times when you were younger, well, maybe I'll go to Paris and write my novel and so on. Whatever became of your novel and what were you considering in your novel? Actually, I ended up writing a short story at the time. But something very interesting happened just a few years ago. Peter had brought up a carton of papers that I had down in the basement. And I started going through it, and I suddenly found this manuscript. I looked at it, what in the world is this? So I started reading it, and I realized I had written it 50 years earlier. And it was a story that I had started. I never quite finished. So I sat down, and I finished it. And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. I even tried to publish it in a few places, and nobody took it. I think it was much too much of its time, and I don't think it was quite understood by young people who were probably the ones who were reading it. But it it, it really kept with me, and I I have now decided it's really the first chapter of a novel. So I am somewhat desolate horribly writing a novel. We'll see what happens. I don't know. To have your creative juices stimulated by something that you created 50 years ago, but it still is something that captures your imagination. Do you dare tell us, even in a superficial way, what the focus might be of the story? Well, yeah. Actually, what's interesting is that, you know, I kept thinking all during the early 1960s that I uh, I had to write the novel of what it was like to be a woman in my time. And then around the middle of the decade, I read Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook, and I thought, oh, she's done it. I don't have to do it. And 
And then I thought to myself, I'm really not a writer, because if I were really a writer, I would have been furious that she'd beaten me to it, instead of feeling relieved. (laughs) And so I really stopped thinking of myself as a writer at that point. But this book would really be a kind of, if it ever gets written, it would really be about a woman of more or less of that time and, you know, carrying her through for decades and trying to both discover and describe being a woman in the second half of the 20th century. And you give us some of your thoughts on that matter in the course of this book. You talk about the impact of reading Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex and about your relationship with your lovers and thinking of yourself, if that's all of me they want, well, that's not enough. You were wrestling in your growing up years with those issues, weren't you? Well, yes, and I think really uh, being a woman, an American woman, is so different now than it was when I was younger. Different expectations, certainly. I mean, look, when I went to college, we all expected, we were all expected to get married. That was, it was sort of just accepted. Whereas now, I think, uh, expectations are all over the place. And you did mightily well in navigating through all of those decades. And you said when you read Doris Lessing's book that you gave up thinking of yourself as a writer, but it wasn't necessarily because you had a a big brother who was an award-winning writer. That wasn't it. To some extent it was, I think, a little bit. It was sort of like, oh, he's done it. He does it so well. Why bother? You know, I do think I, I might have felt it was more important to be a writer if I, I didn't feel there was already a writer in the family. At the end, when you do give us the chapter on Norman, I thought it was an interesting conversation you related to us, talking with Norman about what has more truth, fiction or fact? And it's certainly a question for our time in the 21st century now. Can you give us a little bit more sense about what you were both talking about? Because you had had the experience of the documents not lying, but maybe not being accurate. Where did that conversation between you two come from? Well, I mean, it it was interesting because Norman did believe that fiction was, in some ways, it was easier to get to truth through fiction than through fact, Uh, whereas I I always wanted to know what, what really happened. And finally I decided, oh, one never really can be sure that maybe he's right. And how interesting it will be. You have this memoir-like book, Love of My Life, and fingers crossed you'll soon have a novel covering the same time period, exploring how a woman of that time was challenged and grew and came into full, mature selfhood and loving. One is based in historical facts. The other will be fiction. It will be intriguing to see what you feel about of getting to the truth through the telling of the stories that happened in your life, actually, and the imaginative telling of a story of a woman who lived the trajectory that might parallel yours. When did you actually finish this book? When did you finally say it's ready to go? Sometime in the last six months. It's interesting that you like the way, you know, I'm so delighted that you like the way in which it is, because I did finally decide that the only way to, to do it was in the order in which I had written the stories, because
because I didn't feel that they were, I didn't feel it could be chronological in any way. When you put the pen down and now it's out there and we're talking about it, was it a revelation to you? You end almost with the various loves of your life and that would be Peter and the men in your life. And you say even Norman, that, that final summing up there where you talk about all the loves of your life, was that something you knew going in? Oh, no. <laughs> no, um, no, it was uh, actually, no, I, I, I didn't. I mean, it was, I think it was really triggered by Norman misunderstanding, holding an idea in his head all, practically all of our lives that, that the uh, great love of my life had been Jack, which was certainly not true. And, and I think it was his saying that which triggered my talking about who were the loves of my life. And that, that was what triggered my talking about, you know, I said, no, not Jack. And then I said, Al was. But, you know, all of these things are so, so imprecise <laughs> because people have such, the loves of one's life are so different that it's hard to say which was the greatest love of one's life. Barbara Mailer Wasserman, speaking about Love of My Life, her new book issued by Arbitrary Press. She is someone who has been a researcher on documentary films, an editor at Simon Schuster. She has publications including The Bold New Women, an anthology of women writers published in 1967 and revised in 1970. The short memoir, Spain, 1948, published in the Hudson Review. And now, most recently, Love of My Life, a memoir. That's Barbara Mailer Wasserman and her new book, Love of My Life. And it's been issued by Arbitrary Press. And for more information on the web, peteralson.com. And that's P-E-T-E-R-A-L-S-O-N.com. It's Arbitrary Press.